Good morning. Welcome to Encounter Church. I'm so glad that you are here today. My name is Chris Causey. I'm the lead pastor. And before we jump in, I just want to tell you, we have a free app um, called Encounter Church. It's simple. It's free. And if you want to download it, the reason I say that is because every week when I'm teaching, um, everything that I am saying, kind of the passage that I'm working through and ability to take notes is all present inside of the app. It's also a way that you're able to kind of communicate with us and help us know how we can be praying for you and kind of leaning into whatever you're finding yourself into in the midst of it. And so it's one of those things that I don't always kind of do a commercial, but today I think that maybe you're going to want to take some notes. And the reason why is because um, over the course of last, last week, uh, I've heard from some of you just how helpful, how inspirational last week was in the last two weeks of this series where we've been looking at the church. And what is the church about? What defines the church? What are the marks of the church? And that um, just uh, even my wife was like, hey, I've I, I got to go listen to your message because she oversees our family area. So she was like, I, I've had people text me just talking about how inspirational it was. And so one of the things that I recognized coming out of last week where we looked at three marks of what the, that was really meant to be a reflection of the church, that um, maybe there was a lot of inspiration and a little few handles, but what I wanted to do is actually kind of double click on those three things over the next three weeks and kind of go a little bit deeper, um, which means if you haven't listened to the last two weeks, you're not going to miss anything. But if you haven't listened to the last two weeks, you could miss some things. And so that's where the app is really helpful because you're going to be able to go back and watch and listen. But know that you haven't had to hear the last two weeks to set you up for today. While this message primarily is geared towards and a build off of what does it look like to be a Christian, especially today, what does it look like to be a reflection of the church today, I think what you'll find is even if you're not a Christian, even if you're kind of exploring the Christian faith, that what I think you'll find over the next three weeks is alternate perspectives, a little different way of seeing and understanding the world that um, often gets served to you, that we don't recognize it, but we all swim, and we're like fish swimming in water, and that water um, has a whole series of presuppositions and um, lies and truth all kind of mixed into it, and that what hopefully you'll find over the next three weeks, even as you're kind of evaluating the faith as a whole, is that Christianity off offers you a different way of seeing the world that I think makes the world make more sense. It also explains some of the deepest tensions that perhaps you feel in your own personal life. So while this message is really geared towards helping Christians really continue to flesh out these three different ways, uh, these three different marks of the church, I think regardless of where you are, you're going to find this super helpful. The first thing I want to do this first week is look at the very first mark I talked about last week, which was that the church looked at the world differently. They looked at things differently. They saw things differently than their contemporaries. And I think that is absolute true of today, too, that this faith that we have, this Christian faith, this Jesus way, causes us to see things differently. And this is the first piece because I think if we live disconnected from this, we can miss it all. And so what I want to do today is look at a passage written to a group of people who were trying to navigate a very difficult situation and circumstance. And what the writer of this letter does in just a couple of verses is help them understand how they can see the world differently, how they can understand life a little differently than those around them, and ultimately how they can shine like stars in the sky. 
The letter is written to a group of people. We don't know who wrote the letter. We just know that it was written almost 2,000 years ago. It was written to a group of people who had one point in their life been Jewish. And because of their conversion to Christianity, because they were absolutely convinced that Jesus was the promised one that the Jewish scriptures predicted, these people saw Christianity as an extension and as a fulfillment of their Jewish faith. And so they began to follow Jesus as this chosen one, as this unique kind of God on earth that he was. But because of that turn towards Christianity, a lot of Jews in their context did not see them living out a continuation of their Jewish faith. They saw a faith that was in direct competition with their faith. And as a result, there was pressure, there was oppression, there was job loss. It was hard being a Christian in the midst of a culture that did not like that you were a Christian. And it got so bad that many of those who were starting to show up to church service, many of those who were starting to kind of follow Jesus in the course of their life, believing he was the promised one that God had promised, they started to kind of second-guess themselves. They started to maybe say, well, I don't know if this is actually really worth it. And they were starting to lean out instead of lean in to their faith. And the writer writes to this group this letter that eventually becomes known as Hebrews. It's a really amazing book. The first 10 chapters of the book is this really profound, deep kind of theological discussion around the Jewish faith and why Jesus is superior, uh, while Jesus, why Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that the Jewish faith had hoped for. It takes a turn in chapter 10, and 11, 12, 13, it begins to get very practical, where the first 10 chapters are theologically deep and kind of really well-reasoned arguments. The writer of Hebrews says, look, you don't need an argument. You need to know how you can put this into action. And that's what the final, like, final chapters of the book really focuses in on. And there's a two verses, in, really three verses, in that final portion that are the hinge. And that's the portion I want to focus in on. Because in this passage, what we'll find is a way for you and I that kind of unlocks how we are meant to see the world a little differently than those who may be living beside us with a different kind of different worldview or a different set of faiths. And Hebrews chapter 12, 1 through 2, the writer says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. This is the hinge for this very practical section. What you'll notice, um, for those who've already taken the 112, which is kind of our spiritual formations course, you've probably already picked up on it, is the very opening of this hinge. It says, therefore, and one of the things that I teach in the 112 is whenever you see the passage, therefore, you should know what it's there for. Therefore is a connecting phrase. It's, it's meant to kind of continue or develop or help kind of foster kind of the, um, the movement of a thought. And so when it says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, it's actually connecting to the previous chapter, which is Hebrews 11. This is a passage that oftentimes, I think sometimes as Christians, we misunderstand. People read this passage, and without understanding the context, and without understanding how the, the words are there, one of the things I teach is context is king, language is queen, when I'm teaching people how to study the Bible. That if we disconnect this thing, then what we eventually come to is this idea that people are in heaven watching us live out our faith. That's actually one of the ways that when people are like, well, I know they're watching down on us. 
And normally, when I'm face-to-face with them, I don't want to pop the bubble. But since there's no bubble to pop, because it's a group, not an individual, let me pop that bubble. Okay? This is not a passage referring to how people are in heaven watching you. First of all, you sitting on the toilet, paying candy, like playing Candy Crush, would be the worst reality television show ever. We would not call that heaven. We would call that something absolutely different. Right? Most of our lives are not that thrilling and exciting. And to think that somehow heaven is really nothing more than a glorified television watching your life and my life is slightly depressing if you really think about it. This is meant to connect people to that previous chapter. And why does it say such a great cloud of witnesses? It's because we don't have spectators in our life. We have examples of previous lives. Hebrews chapter 11 is a, a series of individuals I encourage you to read it if you've never read it. It talks about all the great men and women of faith who lived out their faith faithfully. And one of the things that's really important if you read through Hebrews 11 is that it has nothing to do with the circumstances of what they navigated. There are some people in Hebrews chapter 11 who things went really well. And there are some people in Hebrews chapter 11 where things were horrible. What mattered was not their circumstances. And what the writer is trying to communicate to these people who are reading this letter, who are looking at their circumstances, who are seeing their pressures, who are seeing their struggles, and they're beginning to ask themselves this fundamental question, is this worth it? The writer of Hebrews says, I just want to hit pause and zoom out of your life. Look at the people who've gone before you. Their faithfulness was not dependent on their circumstances. Some of them had really good times, but some of them had really bad times. And none of them allowed that to define their time on earth. None of them allowed their circumstances to determine the outcome of their life. And this very first kind of introduction, translation, trans from chapter 11 is really meant to help all of us, regardless of what we're in the midst of, recognize that our circumstances do not determine the outcome of our life. They don't have the final say. The circumstances you are walking through are not meant to be the headline of your life. But think about it. How often do we do that? We allow what we are going through to become the headline of our life, to become the defining trait of our life. We stick labels on things. And we make those the ultimate labels of our lives. We allow circumstances that, went, that we went through where we failed to, to label us failures. And this is what the writer of Hebrews is helping them from the very get-go of this transitional to very practical piece. It's like, I want you to understand, we look at things differently. Your circumstances, your challenges, they are not the headline. And what was true 2,000 years ago is also true about me and you too. You, as the writer of Hebrews is about to show, have a choice in what the headline of your life is going to look like. You get to determine what that headline is. You may not get to determine what the circumstances of that story is. You may not get to sometimes even dictate what the characters in that story look like. But you do get to determine the headline. Which is why with this very inspirational look what they've done, 
with what they've had, he pivots to where you and I are now. And what's the focus? The focus is on the choice. He says, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. So he's like, in light of everything that we've just read, now let's get to you and to me. There are two things I want to challenge you with, he says. I want to challenge you with how you make your decisions, and I want to challenge you with how you see your life. Because at the hallmark kind of of a life disconnected from the faith is oftentimes a hallmark, that hallmark is that they see their choices disconnected from their life. They see the choices they make today as the choices they make today, not as the consequences of tomorrow. I mean, we were traveling as a family last year, um, last summer to go see family, and we stopped at a restaurant, and at that time, like most restaurants at that time, you couldn't actually go inside. It was takeout. And so we ordered some sub sandwiches, and we sat in our car, and we were eating our chips, and, you know, everybody's unbuckled, sitting in the parking lot, and we're talking and laughing. I have the window rolled down, and somehow in the course of that, uh, something gets thrown out the window, and a bird lands, and it begins to, to eat it. And of course, um, everybody in the car is like, oh, National Geographic. Um, and so we throw another one. And, and then another bird lands. And it's like, oh, National Geographic times two. Like my kids are really enjoying it because there's the birds right there eating and it's fun to watch. And now they're like, the two are fighting over it. And it's kind of like, oh. And then, you know, so my, my kids are like, yeah, again, again, again. So I throw another one. And now four birds have shown up, and now it's starting to get a little dicey, and, you know, birds are starting to kind of get a little cutthroat with each other. And, and of course, we're egging this thing on. Now we're throwing a handful out there, and soon I'm rolling up my window. Our car is surrounded by seagulls. We can literally hear them walking on the roof of our car, and it becomes very quickly, it shifts from a National Geographic special to an Alfred Hitchcock horror film. And what's funny is that anyone with a rational brain watching me from the distance would have been like, yep, that fool is starting it right now. Because I set that Alfred Hitchcock moment up by the very first one that I threw. And what we have to recognize is that the choices we're making in a life is a lot like seagulls feeding on goldfish. That we think it's just one thing. But it has the power, especially daily as we repeat it to start to shape our life. And we, we live disconnected because we say things like, well, how did that happen? It's like standing on a scale, and I'm like, man, how did I gain 15 pounds? Can't figure that one out. And my wife's like, it's called Fair Life Chocolate Milk. You drink it every night. That's how it happened. And I'm like, you leave Fair Life out of that? Okay, Fair Life did not ask you to speak negatively about it, Okay. If you've never had Fair Life chocolate milk, it is literally the greatest chocolate milk that has ever been invented. I want to meet the cows that produce that sweet nectar from their udders because they need to be, like, elevated to national heroes. It's incredible. Anyways, digression. That's how it happens, right? Fair Life chocolate milk on the couch. That's how you gain 15 pounds. But we live disconnected. We don't see our choices in light of the bigger picture. And that the writer of Hebrews is being very clear about the choices that you and I make in our life. He doesn't just go to the obvious place where the sins that so easily entangle. 
That's the really obvious one, the, the really negative, bad, wrong choices we make in our life. He makes the point that throw off everything that hinders. He actually creates two different categories. He's like, there are the wrong decisions, but then there's a whole other set of decisions that just aren't right, even though they're not wrong. And this is a hard category to understand unless you understand the bigger context of what the writer's doing here. He's saying, why is scrolling endlessly through social media one of those things that could potentially hinder our life? Like, why is that a big deal? We can pick any kind of illustration and stick it in here. You can take almost any good thing you do and insert it into this category. And the point isn't that any of those one things are wrong. It's that that mindset of living with a disconnect from our choices and our life is wrong. We live in a culture that's absolutely obsessed with efficiency. People read books and buy books about how to get their task list done better, how to get to inbox zero. We live in a culture obsessed with all these tests and evaluations so that we can be more effective in all the different things that we do. But we don't live in a culture that actually takes a step back and ever asks the question, is what I'm doing actually what I should be doing? Is inbox zero an actual worthy goal of our life, or is there just some emails that don't matter? We don't have a culture that thinks that way. We have a culture that drives towards efficiency. And I'm not knocking efficiency, but currently we're living in a world right now where you're having to buy Christmas presents that are predominantly squishies if you have children. Why are you buying squishies for your kids? Because that's the main thing that you can find in toy stores right now. Is because, well, toy makers are trying to figure out how they can make a profit this Christmas. And squishies can be fit into container a lot cheaper and a lot more denser. And so a lot of toy makers have prioritized squishies over hard boxed items because the cost of a shipping container is over $10,000 per container, which is a 200% increase from what it was a year ago. Why is it a 200% increase? Why is there so much issue? It's because what guided the whole economic supply chain before the pandemic was a pursuit of efficiency. This concept called just-in-time. We're only going to make parts when we need them. And because we can get this part from Vietnam to China to Mexico to get put together to be in the store when we actually need it. It's just in time. And just in time was a whole concept driven by a pursuit of efficiency. And what the pandemic showed us is that efficiency by itself is not the only or the best way to make the choices in life. No one ever thought, well, what happens if this and this are no longer effective anymore? Well, then the whole thing ripples. There are incredible drone shots of parking lots in Detroit, of Ford Broncos. Hundreds and thousands of Ford Broncos already assembled, and the only thing they lack is tiny little microchips. And these almost complete vehicles are filling up parking lots because just in time, a pursuit of efficiency. It doesn't matter if your team is agile or lean. It doesn't matter if your life is. You have to ask the question, is what I am being agile for, is what I'm pursuing worth 
actually pursuing. I think that there's something worse than losing in life. And it's winning in the wrong thing. And your life matters. You're the only one. You're the only you that will ever exist. This is why there's this call to run it with perseverance, the race that's marked out for us. I think that sometimes we focus so much on our choices that we miss that how unique you actually are, how on purpose you actually were planned. When Jillian Lynn was a really young girl, she was a horrible student. Um, She actually had the nickname um, in the early 20s, early 30s, as uh, wiggle bottoms because she couldn't sit still. She couldn't pay attention. Her grades were bad. And her mom was really concerned about her. So she took Jillian to the doctor. The doctor is listening to the mom explain how she's having trouble paying attention, how she can't keep still, how her grades are slipping, how kind of rambunctious she is. And the doctor looks at her mom And says, hey, step outside. And then the doctor walks over to the radio and puts on music. And then walks out the door. Now, this is the 30s and frosted glass. And so a little bit akin to what we would call mirror glass today. And the mom and the doctor stood outside the door looking through the window. And after a few minutes of the music playing, they noticed something. Jillian started to move. Not just to move, to kind of move with the music. Soon she was dancing. At one point, she's on the doctor's desk. That when she's completely free, she starts to just dance. And the doctor turns over while they're watching their daughter and says, "Um, Ma'am, you don't have a problem child. You have a dancer. I recommend you find a dance class for her. Now, Unless you're a big fan of Broadway or ballet, you have no clue who Jillian Lynn is. But Jillian Lynn would go on to eventually choreograph Cats and The Phantom of the Opera, two of the longest-running Broadway shows in Broadway history. And if you read her autobiography, the thing that she will say is that that doctor's observation about who she was was one of the most single important moments in her life. Because when she, was taken to a doc- when she was taken to ballet class, she began to thrive. And that passage that you were made for a purpose, to run, there is a race for you. There is a race for me. That there is something, someone, certain things that only you were meant to do on this earth in this time. That it wasn't just some story about Jillian. It's also a story about you and me too. And that we make our decisions in light of that purpose, in light of that reason we were made. That that's the filter we're passing our choices through. That's the framework that we make decisions out of. But I love the honesty that's present. Because the honesty is to run it with perseverance. Because there's another ditch that our culture has. For those who don't fall into the efficiency ditch, the other ditch is, well, I'm going to become obsessed with effectiveness. I'm going to find my sweet spot, and it'll be sweet. 
Well, if that was the case, the writer of Hebrews would not have said, run the race with perseverance. Because no amount of sweet spot living makes it sweet. It's still a struggle. It's still hard. It's still difficult. Life is tough. And that this critical piece that as people who follow the way, that we see our lives through a different frame, that we're not an evolutionary accident, we're not some remix of a kind of a biological moment, that we were literally thawed up in heaven with a purpose. And that that purpose should practically ripple through our entire life and impact the choices that we make and the lives that we live. But we also understand we, we don't live in a world that's the way it's supposed to be. That the pain that we feel, not just physically, but emotionally, spiritually, all point to the fact that there's something wrong. Pain was gift, a gift from God to tell us when we're doing something or experiencing something that's not the way it's supposed to be. That's why perseverance is needed, because we live in a world that's broken. That's not the way it was designed to be. So even in the midst of your sweet spot, it's still going to be a struggle. And while all of this sounds really good and helpful, all of this could be slightly twicked and, and Tony Robbins or some Peloton instructor could be screaming these things at you. What ultimately both of them lack is the bigger framework that's present in this passage. It's what the writer of Hebrews is essentially sandwiching when he says, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. See, this was a really important part. In the ancient world, the finish line was not a place. It was a face. You ran towards someone, not something. Now, a little bit of the connection, right, is it's a whole lot easier to run with perseverance when you know there's a finish line. That's been part of the struggle that many of us experience through this pandemic. It feels like there is no finish line. The weeks of March 2020 turned into the months of 2020 that has turned into the years that we've been navigating this thing. There doesn't feel like there's a finish line. Circumstantially, it can be really hard to get that kind of clarity. So what's the writer doing? So actually, your finish line isn't anywhere in this life. Your finish line is the face of Jesus. That's what you're running towards. That's what you're pushing towards. That's what you're to live your life in light of. Now, everything I've said, if you've grown up in any way, shape, or form, in any church environment, you are already saying, I knew all this. Yawn. This isn't all there is. I should live in light of heaven. But I think here's the problem. Familiarity breeds contempt. And familiarity often deceives us in the thinking we actually understand something. So this past week, my daughter and I, we were um, getting ready for bed, and we were, we were starting to talk, and somehow the conversation went through a series of um, mind-blowing topics. The first topic was the Trinity because she asked what the Trinity is. And the Trinity is this kind of core Christian doctrine that God exists 
three in one. And like any rational human being, she's like, what? How does three and one make sense? And I'm like, that's a great question. So what did I do naturally as a theologian? I said, let me tell you about light. Did you know that light exists both simultaneously as a wave and as a point particle? That at the core of quantum mechanics is the understanding that light is a duality and that we recognize, though we can't fathom that, that experimentally demonstrates that over and over again. And she's like, oh, Father, thank you. The Trinity makes sense now. She's like, what? I said, well, sweetie, light propagates through the space-time continuum. What? What is the space-time continuum? And I'm like, I don't think I'm moving her closer to understanding this concept. Because now we've gone from the trinity to the duality of light as both a wave and a particle, right? Schrodinger's wave equation for those physics people out there. Now we're into the space-time continuum and the four-dimensionality of the universe. And she's, I guess, my child. And so she's not pumping the brakes. She's not pulling the emergency handle. She's like, tell me more. What do you mean space-time continuum? What do you mean fabric of the universe? I was like, well, sweetie, you know, like the universe is actually comprised of, a, a, we don't really understand exactly of what, but we know that space and, space and time are interlocked and that one stretches and as one stretches, it, it affects the other one. And she was like, well, can you, it's, it's like a fabric. Can you rip the fabric? What happens if you rip the fabric? It's like stuff sucks out. And I'm like, no, no, you can't actually rip the fabric. You can severely warp it with a black hole. Oh my, what is a black hole, daddy? I'm like, my wife's going to kill me. It's like 30 minutes at this point, right? And I'm like, this is bedtime. And now I'm like, well, we need to watch some educational videos, sweetie. So I pull up YouTube, and now we're watching YouTube videos on black holes. And now she's like, wait, how big is the universe? And I'm like, oh, you have no idea. So let me tell you how big the universe is. Because we're all on this journey together. Let's say that we shrink our solar system down to the scale of Gillette Stadium. And let's say for the sake of the argument that we put the sun on the goal line. The sun, the solar little star that we call our sun, that is the source of all energy that we find on Earth, is um, the size of a dime on the scale. Now, I'm not going to go through every planet. I'll just hit the highlights because I recognize I, I have a ticking time clock with all of you right now, and so I want to make this fast. Earth is on the two-yard line. Earth is about the, the size of a grain of sand at this point. So incredibly small. This is a dime, grain of sand. Most of the first three planets, including Mars, are somewhere in that vague area. The next planet, Jupiter, is on the 10-yard line. Jupiter is about half the size of a flea or kind of cut a piece of rice in the middle, and you've got Jupiter on the scale. Still a lot smaller than the dime. Saturn is on the 19-yard line. It's also roughly about the size of a rice cut in half. Our next planet, right, we, you go through the kind of things, but to pick the final planet to give you that baseline, um, not Pluto, for those who were children of the 70s, 80s, and prior, right? Pour a little out for Pluto. Rest in peace, Pluto. We miss you. 
You, you are our first love, Pluto. Okay? Um, the last planet, now technically, because, um, you know, like, you think you've built your life around scientific facts, and then they go up in demonium. Um, and so you learn songs that have Pluto at the end. Get rid of that. Um, so Pluto is actually not there. Neptune, the final planet, is on the 40-yard line on the other side. It's 60 yards from the goal line. And I won't even bore you with size because it doesn't matter at this point. But what my daughter was starting to realize as we're kind of walking through the size and the scale and the scope of the solar system is that things are a lot bigger than she realized. And I said, but, as we're working through this journey together, I was like, let me tell you one other piece of fact. Now, if you shrunk Earth down to the size of a black hole, it would fit in your hand, but it would weigh like planet Earth. That's a pretty interesting fact. So, but you know actually what's really fascinating? Black holes are cool, but did you know that in your body, you have something called DNA? That's you. You in code form. In each one of your cells, that DNA is supercoiled, and it's about six feet long in every one of your cells. That I- anyone who took college, biology, lab, you probably at some point actually, with certain enzymes, uncoiled it and had that amazing realization staring at a little strand of DNA that you've uncoiled how long DNA actually is. But I was like, do you know if you take every piece of DNA in your body and you stretch them out, do you know how long it would be? It would be this long. From here to here. If you stretched, if you put together all the DNA in your body and you made one single rope from it, it would go from the goal line at Gillette Stadium all the way to standing in line at five widths across from Red Robin. Because 20 billion kilometers is how long all of your DNA stretched into one single strand would actually be. At this point is when your brain should blow up. Because that is how much DNA is inside of your body. It goes beyond the stadium and goes all the way out here. And what I loved in that moment was I was watching my daughter experience something that I think is one of my favorite feelings in all of life, wonder. This realization that the world is bigger. She's bigger. And then I looked at her and said, you know what the psalmist says, Ella? The psalmist says, oh, oh, by the way, because you should know this. Based at this scale, if you want to know how big the universe is, you need to go another 500 billion miles from the goal line to get to the end of the universe. At that point, our brains don't work anymore. Can't even fathom that. But I saw it. She was like, wait a second. And all of a sudden, the Trinity crystallized in a whole different kind of way. She was like, I don't, wow, I don't even have a box for that. I'm like, the psalmist says that, that God marks the span of the universe with his hand. I just had to shrink it down to Gillette Stadium to even measure out our cul-de-sac of our solar system. And that when God looks at the universe, he goes one, two, three, four, five. It's like, how big is that God who can forge and form a universe our mind cannot even comprehend? 
and yet simultaneously put within inside of our body something collectively that when stretched to its final limit, the only scale to understand it is at the universal scale of our DNA. And the infiniteness of his majesty, of his glory, of his strength, the God who can juggle black holes and who forms stars and calls them out every single night, who looks at this vast thing that we has, and we just stand in awe, and he just goes, ah, because he can do bigger. That simultaneous infinite God was so intimately involved in your life, Ella, that he made you, and there'll never be another you. I think that oftentimes what gets in the way of us really grabbing hold of this is that our Jesus is this smaller, reduced, better version of us. He's, he's a little bit more athletic than you are. He's got a better handle on his calendar than you do. Maybe his task management systems are a little bit more efficient and effective than yours. But we take our version of ourselves and we project up. When in reality, heaven took who he was and projected it down when you were made. And it only works one way. The ability to understand the other way just doesn't. And here's why this matters. is I think all of this stuff hinges on what you see when you see him. If you believe he's just a little bit better, older version of you, maybe that long gray beard, because he's lived forever. If you see him as maybe a, some kind of distant creator, it's going to shape how you live your life. But if you see him as the infinite one who is the intimate one who stepped into planet Earth to pursue you and me, who calls you by name, who knows you, then you recognize that what the, what the writer here is telling us runs completely counter to what our culture does. Our culture says if you want the answers to life, if you want to know who you are, you want to know your value, you just need to look within because that's where it is. That's where the answer is, inside of you. As if somehow if you could just get inside and claw it out and bring out who you really are, you would thrive. And what the creator, the writer of Hebrews is saying that the only way to fully answer all of life's creations is not to look within, is to look up and to see your life in the bigger, grander scale of a God who made you, a God who chased you, a God who formed, and a God who was crucified for you. All of a sudden, sin looks a whole lot differently when you understand who it is you've sinned against. Sin isn't a mistake. It's not a small thing that you and I have done. A lie becomes something cosmic when you understand that God is the God of cosmos. And grace really becomes amazing when you understand what it actually was that was accomplished on the cross. And death really actually becomes something manageable when you realize he walked out of the grave. And you start to treat you differently when you realize how much thought was put into you. But you do it with humility because you realize how broken simultaneously you were. And it makes you treat people differently. Because now when you walk among people it's the equivalent of walking through an art museum. 
You wouldn't go through an art museum and shred a Van Gogh. You wouldn't kick over a Michelangelo. And you wouldn't downplay a Raphael. But yet we do this every single moment of our lives. With our words, with our actions, we treat priceless works of art called people like they're worthless. We treat this priceless work of art like it's worthless. You see, if you understand this, it changes how you see everything else. It changes how you see your circumstances. It changes how you see your choices. And it changes how you see your life because absolutely, positively for all of us, there is a moment when the name of Jesus will become the face of Jesus. And we live our lives in light of that moment. And that for those who are Christians, not with a sense of fear. Because we actually see how big the cross was. And how much grace was poured out on that cross for us who've trusted in him. It means becoming a Christian is a far bigger deal than we ever realized. Because it means that we lay our lives at the feet of the one who created our lives. Who knows the purpose of our lives. And while all of this goes far beyond the scope of this message, I want you to know in January, because this has been a driving passion for me through the pandemic as I've been dreaming about this next season of the church. And I've alluded to the fact that I went and got certified in life planning because that goal, that, that process I went through and got certified in is really about helping you find clarity about the purpose you were created for. Because I want to help you Discover why you were made so that you can live for that purpose. Why? Because I'm absolutely convinced that the God who created you is worthy of your life being lived in light of that. He is worthy of me leveraging my life to help you discover why you were created for this life. It is worthy of this church mobilizing people around those things to be a force for good. It means that we can look at our societal problems and instead of retreating into echo chambers and political divisions that we can step forward with solutions knowing that the grace that we have, the the power of creativity and imagination to render solutions is so much bigger than we've ever imagined that we can walk into communities and circumstances and situations and know that we serve a God who can raise things from the dead it changes you it changes me it changes how this church is meant to be so know that I'm not just handing you some things that you're left with saying what am I supposed to do with this I'm handing you something so that I can begin to walk alongside of you and help you figure out how to do something with it And over the next three weeks, that's what I want to do. What does it look like as a church? What does it look like as people who follow Jesus to shine like stars in the sky? And maybe in the process, maybe what happens for some of you is that while this series plays out, maybe in the midst of it, you discover that there was a God who made you, formed you, and that there's a God who died for you, and there's a God who gives you life, willing to give anyone life, And to set them on the course of their life. If they just simply turn and trust in who he is and what he's done for their life. And I'm convinced if we're willing to lean in, then over the next three weeks, you and I will start to experience even greater depths of living like stars in the sky. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for who you are. 
for the cosmic scale in which is comprised inside of our cells to the craftsmanship of the heavens and the earth that are all billboards pointing to who you are from the way that you've paved a way for us to be able to walk in that way that we call Christianity because of the cross and the resurrection. And thank you, Jesus, that there is no one like you. And I pray, Father, that in the midst of this final moments together, that in our hearts, in our minds, that you would even begin to stir within us a greater zeal to live for you. An even greater wonder of who you are. And that you would meet us, the one who is infinite, the one who is intimate, that you would be present with us in these final moments as we reflect on who you are and what our life looks like as a result of that. And it's in your name, Jesus, that I pray. Amen. I want to thank you for being here today.